Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. This episode is going to be a little different. This is going to be a um, critique and a invitation to conversation with Gavin Ortland. Specifically, I'm going to be doing some commentary on a video that he made about the Trinity, and then I'm going to present some of my own views on the topic. But the main purpose of this is not to tear down Gavin or anything like that. This is in the spirit of constructive criticism and an invitation to further conversation on the topic. I mentioned a couple of videos ago when I gave a personal update that I was going to be reaching out to more Protestants. And the overwhelming favorite in the comments on that video of someone that I should talk to was Gavin Ortland. And honestly, I'm not surprised by that. I had been um, I had been watching his channel for a good while and really enjoyed his content. And I also thought he would be a good person for me to talk to. I think that Gavin's a good person for me to talk to for a couple of reasons. Um, one, he's a, a fellow Protestant on YouTube. Uh, I think that we both live in this sort of weird world where in our real lives, most of the people we know are Protestant evangelical Christians with some Catholics here and there. But on YouTube, especially Christian YouTube, Catholicism, and especially Eastern Orthodoxy is extremely pro prominent. And I think we sort of both interact in that same online landscape. And so he sort of gets the lay of the land in terms of where the conversation's at. I should also say Gavin has a really good understanding of Christian history, and he places a really high value on the church fathers and the early witness of the church which is something that I do as well. And I'll be talking about that later in this video. And I also think that Gavin has just a really uniquely ironic and um, peaceful spirit that he engages with people that he disagrees with really well. Um, he doesn't back down on the substance of questions, but he still treats people who disagree with him with tremendous respect. And for all of those reasons, I think that he would be good for me to talk to. I should also say his dad was a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield. And while I've recently revealed my own name, uh, I'm not about to give out my address, but I will say that I live pretty close to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So we probably grew up not very far away from each other. We might have even gone to rival high schools or something like that. So um. To give a little bit of a background on what my channel is and who I'm about, I'm a biblical Unitarian, which I'll just define that here briefly. So biblical Unitarianism believes that scripture is inspired by God and alone is authoritative. So this is just the regular Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. I've really enjoyed Gavin's defense and debates on the topic of sola scriptura. I think that him and I probably basically completely agree on this particular subject. Um, but where we wouldn't agree, I would say that God is one person, namely God the Father alone, and Jesus began to exist as a special creation by God in the Virgin Mary. In other words, he didn't pre-exist his own human existence. Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. That would be something we would agree about. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Miracles um, are God working through Jesus, not Jesus doing it with his own intrinsic divinity. And when Jesus speaks, he's speaking with the authority that God gave him to speak. Um, Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. Uh, I think that most of the time, honestly, biblical Unitarians and Trinitarians have a very similar atonement theory. Um, sometimes it gets a little bit different if Trinitarians will really heavily emphasize the divinity of Christ in the crucifixion for some reason or another. But most of the time, honestly, it's pretty similar. 
Um, he was resurrected, exalted to the right hand of God. In other words, he enters heaven for the first time after his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Um, and this, is, this next bullet point is something that maybe not all biblical Unitarians would agree with, but um, this is something that I would say is true, that Jesus comes to participate in the divine nature of God. In other words, God sort of shares his divinity with Jesus upon the resurrection and ascension into heaven. And so it's okay to say that, I, in other words, I would affirm that Jesus is divine in some sense now. Um, and so sometimes it's it, the arguments between biblical Unitarians and Trinitarians are like, is Jesus divine or is Jesus not divine? I think the better question is, in what sense is Jesus divine is actually the real question. And I would even say that Jesus gets given God's name. And so you can even call Jesus God and Lord, uh, you know, with reservation and as long as you know what you're doing. And so I think that's another thing that Trinitarians might not understand about what we actually believe. Um, last two points, he will come again and establish the kingdom. Most biblical Unitarians, including myself, are premillennial in their eschatology. Um, and last bullet point, the Holy Spirit is an energy or an activity of God the Father in creation, but not a separate person. Um, the Holy Spirit is sometimes personified in scripture, sometimes spoken of like it's a person, but also sometimes the Holy Spirit is sometimes spoken of like it's not a separate person. And I would say that's actually similar to how God's wisdom gets talked about sometimes. Sometimes it's just God's wisdom, sometimes it's personified. And so you can personify God's attributes and powers and activities, but that doesn't mean that they're like separate persons. There's no interpersonal relationship between God and the Holy Spirit. It is just God at work in creation, especially in the lives of human beings. Um, so I will say, to tell a little bit about my story, how did I come to hold these beliefs? The short answer is that I grew up this way. I grew up in a church that was biblical Unitarian. It was sort of a small, charismatic, Bible-oriented, it was like halfway between a real church and a home fellowship, I would say. Um, and we met in Lake Forest, Illinois, not very far away from uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. But while I was growing up in that church and being taught the, these things and being taught to understand the Bible that way, I also went to Trinitarian youth group like through Willow Creek or Young Life. Um, I went to summer camp at Honey Rock Camp through Wheaton College. Uh, and so I had a lot of exposure to Trinitarian evangelical Christianity and sort of had something of, you could say, a hybrid upbringing in that respect. In college, I was in a regular Christian fellowship, although I was in my junior year um, forced to step down from leadership once my beliefs on the Trinity or not in belief in the Trinity became known. And that was a very, um, I would say, difficult and hard time for me um, and caused me to ask a lot of questions. Um, and then a couple, let's see, a bunch of years later, really, I had been going to Trinitarian evangelical churches for most, in fact, for the last 15 years, up until a couple months ago, I have attended Trinitarian evangelical Bible-oriented churches. And um, about five years ago, I was excommunicated from a church for volunteering for the worship band, and then I was forced to sign, not forced, I was asked to sign a statement of faith, and I said I couldn't sign it, and I explained why, and that led to me getting excommunicated. And in that process, which was really pretty hard on me and my family, um, I decided to start this YouTube channel. I wanted to find more people I could talk to about the Trinity, but it was a little bit difficult to do that in real life, both for the reasons that, you know, it take, experts in the Trinity are a little few and far between, 
And also, uh, it's a testy subject. You know, I had had a lot of bad experiences talking to people about the Trinity. So I thought it would be easier to do it anonymously on a YouTube channel and podcast. And that would give me access to the sort of people that I wanted to learn from. And really, the main purpose was me self-learning to see, really to see if I was wrong, to see if I was right, and to learn from experts in the subject and to kind of throw myself out there into a learning process and expose myself to criticism and pushback and feedback and all of those sorts of things. And so things sort of came to a head when my current church or my most recent current evangelical Trinitarian church discovered my podcast and I was sort of pushed out of the church gently, I'll say, but still somewhat encouraged to leave. Um, and so that's where I am now. And But because of that, I've decided to start using my real name and I had also been somewhat avoiding prominent evangelical YouTubers because I was worried that if I was talking to them, then some people in my real life might also listen to them. And then I might get discovered that way. Uh, that actually happened one time when I was on Preston Sprinkles podcast. Um, and so that is sort of what leads me to extending this invitation to Gavin to have this conversation now. Um, and if you want to hear more details of my story, here are two videos. Uh, I'll link them in the description. Um, I was on Paul Vanderclay's uh, podcast, and I was also on Sean Finnegan's podcast, Restitudio, if you're curious about more of my background there. Um, but now I want to um, play a little bit of a video that Gavin uh, did when he was on the Remnant radio show, um, and I'll tie back into why I want to talk about that. Okay, sure. And this is just one way of doing it. This is not like the way to do triage. But, the, you know, as a starting proposal, what I suggest is uh, first rank doctrines are distinctively Christian. They set the boundaries between what is Christianity and what is outside the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity. An example of something like that, in, in my view, would be the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, a second rank doctrine would be something that is really important for the church's practice. And so it distinguishes uh, maybe one denomination from another, but it doesn't make you a Christian or not. So an example of something like this might be um, the subjects of baptism. Do we baptize infants or do we baptize just those who profess faith? And of course, there are some who take a dual practice uh, approach to that, but most historically have taken, you know, we that has led to separation between Baptists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and others. So that's an example of a second rank doctrine. A third rank doctrine would be something that is important. We should talk about it. We should study it. We should seek the truth about it, but it shouldn't divide us in any way. And so, you know, an example of something like that, that I give in the book. And again, you know, these are judgment calls. Not everyone needs to agree, but just trying to be helpful to throw things out. I argue that the millennium in Revelation 20 is a third rank issue. It's important, but it needn't divide us. We, do, we don't have to go to a different church because of it or something like that. Fourth rank doctrines are things that just don't matter. <laughs> it, it just does not matter. And it's, I, you know, it's helpful to put that in there just to distinguish that from the third rank. So when we say that we don't need to divide over something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's unimportant. It just means it's not important enough to divide over. I really like that distinction that he makes. So this is, he, he's talking about a book that he wrote called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And I actually really like that model that he gives of first order, second order, third and fourth. Um, but of course, I would disagree about the Trinity being a first order doctrine. So I should say, it's not like I think 
biblical Unitarianism is a first order doctrine and we should excommunicate from biblical Unitarian churches all the Trinitarians. I actually think that biblical Unitarians and Trinitarians should be able to get along and have fellowship and constructive dialogue with each other. In other words, I would put it actually in that third category. And I noticed he didn't, I'll play a clip later where he talks about how you decide which order of um, the food chain a doctrine is in, but he didn't give any reasons there for why the Trinity should be. Um, and I think that part of what is causing unnecessary division in the church is the overprioritization of that. I would say something that would make sense to me as the first, first order doctrine would be the inspiration of the Bible. Because if we are deriving our doctrines and our understanding of God from the authority of the Bible, then that's technically underneath things, even like the doctrine of the Trinity. And so that is really the thing that is probably most fundamental that if, imagine if two Christians disagree, they have to have some prop, uh, some shared agreed upon process of how we could decide who is right. And I think that that sola scriptura approach is what undergirds Protestant doctrines, not um, the doctrines themselves. So I think that that would be something that I would put in first order. And second order, you know, he gives some examples. It makes sense. So like a church can't have a congregational church hierarchy and a Episcopal church hierarchy. Those are mutually exclusive. A church can only be one or the other. So you can't have a church across that divide. You have to be one or the other. And then third order doctrines are doctrines that are important and are worth discussing. I think that the Trinity and the Incarnation are important and worth discussing. I'm not trying to say doctrines don't matter or none of this is important. I'm not trying to kick it down into that fourth category. Um, so I hope that understands where or helps clarify where I'm coming from on this. I'm going to play another clip from Gavin um, where he explains something else down stop fighting over doctrine and just kind of get along and that's that's a problem um but the other one is is what you mentioned sectarianism and i just you know i say a lot about this in the book i'll just sum it up here and this just comes from my heart of just it really does cause pain and setback for the kingdom of god when we fight over doctrines in an unloving way that does not uh consider the central things that we agree upon and that is observable to the non-Christian world around us, and it causes pain and division in the church. And I don't think any of us who've been in the church for long could deny that we can look around and see some of the negative consequences of that. And a sectarian spirit spirit can be very um, harsh and exacting at times. And so I think the goal what we want to have is a true humility before God, where we're taking theology seriously. We're doing what Isaiah 66 says. We're trembling before God's word. You know, it's not that we're taking things lightly, you know, but it's also that one of the things we take seriously is our calling to love other Christians. To all of that, I'd say a hearty amen. This is a really good example of why I think Gavin would be a really good person for me to talk to. I know exactly what he's talking about when he's talking about that sectarian spirit. I've seen it do a lot of damage both to in my own life and to other people who I love and respect, and not just on the doctrine of the Trinity, too, that I think that Christians forget the call to unity, the call to love each other as neighbors, or even if we're viewing each other as enemies. 
And I think that oftentimes in these conversations, especially on the doctrine of the Trinity, there is a lack of humility before God and people dig in their heels and feel like they're defending God. But really, I think what we should be doing is seeking after God. And so this is this is a really good example of the spirit that I think that Gavin demonstrates in his approach to these subjects that I, I really admire. And to all of that, I say, amen. So here's uh, the last clip that I'm going to play from this video. So in the book, I gave a couple longer criteria, but then I say, here's a, a short one for the, for a pinch, you know, um, in, in a, just, just to start at it, there are four things you can look to. Um, how clearly is it taught in the Bible? What is the witness of church history on it? What's its logical relation to the gospel? And what's its practical effect upon the church? Now, I'm not saying that just those four questions are all you need. I'm not saying they're equally weighted, but that's a great starting set of questions to ask and kind of run. I think that that's also pretty well said. He's talking about how you decide where a doctrine is on his four-step hierarchy, and he gives four criteria. So I'll just go through these. Clarity in Scripture. I, I'll just be pretty blunt here. I just don't think the Trinity is clear from Scripture at all, Old Testament or New. I think that most scholars, even Trinitarian scholars uh, or philosophers or biblical commentators or what have you, would agree that the doctrine of the Trinity is not clearly or even perhaps explicitly taught in the New Testament. Most of the time when I hear Trinitarian biblical informed people try and defend it, it's normally like, well, this verse here kind of hints in this direction, this verse over here. And if I kind of patch a bunch of these things together, well, then we start to get like hints or a fuller picture of the doctrine of the Trinity. But there's no clear teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament, which makes me wonder why then would it be in the first order category? His second question was the testament of history. I'm not going to talk about that very much now. The whole second half of this video will be about that particular question, but I agree that that's a good criteria, and I think too many Protestants ignore church history because they just view it as like Catholic or something like that, and uh, they don't take it seriously, so I admire that he takes it seriously. It's logical connection to the gospel. I would, I'll just say this. I've been on a lot of mission trips with evangelical churches or Trinitarian churches, and I've even been trained uh, in how to do missions by these sorts of churches and gone on overseas and domestic mission trips multiple times. The Trinity never comes up when you are doing missions or when you're trained in how to do missions and how to present the gospel. And I think that a lot of Trinitarian Christians have some sort of intuitive idea that the um, Trinity uh, connects to the definition of the gospel. But oftentimes, upon further examination, they struggle to really give clear reasons why compared to something like my belief. So that's something that I think would be a good conversation topic for me and Gavin. Um, fourth, he said, is its practical effects. And I'll be perfectly honest, I am really not sure what practical effects in people's lives, like where does the rubber meet the road in terms of how a Trinitarian Christian versus how a biblical Unitarian Christian would live their lives and behave and how the church would operate. Like the only things I can think of are like, what lyrics should we include in our worship songs or something like that? And it's really hard for me to come up with tangible effects of the differences in this particular doctrine. And so 
if those four criterias don't strongly support the doctrine of the Trinity, then why is it in first place? That's just sort of my overall question in this video. So now I'm going to transition to um, the video that Gavin did just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's reviewing an old debate between a rabbi named Tobias Singer and William Lane Craig. And so I'm just going to do some commentary on this. In this video, I'm going to defend the doctrine of the Trinity from some of the criticisms given by Rabbi Tovia Singer. I remember when I was in high school, I got a series of cassette tapes from Rabbi Singer. I really enjoyed listening to them. He's very intelligent, very powerful speaker. Singer argues that the Trinity contradicts the monotheism of the Hebrew scriptures. I'm going to refer to the what Christians call the Old Testament as the Hebrew scriptures for this video. And what I want to argue is that the claim that one God exists in three persons, not only does that not contradict the Hebrew scriptures, it clarifies and elucidates them. It I think that um, I like the way that he even tried to find some sort of bridge to Tobias Singer, like he mentioned, listening to his cassette tapes. Again, I think that's just another testimony to Gavin's character that even when he's going to be somewhat critical of someone's ideas, he still tries to build a personal bridge before doing so. Um, so I'm going to skip forward a little bit and get to some of the forms of argument that he gives. Okay, but... Not just is it not contradictory. Here's the question. Is this plausible? Can you see Trinitarianism as a kind of plausible, you know, seed to flower kind of relationship? Is it a plausible, plausible uh, progression of the revelation of God? Yes. Yes, very much so. Here's why. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, we have hints. Well, more than hints. We have little sound points. That there, are, that there is a kind of differentiation or some kind of plurality or some kind of complexity within the one true God. I'm not using the word complex there in a technical way. Let's just say differentiation or plurality within the one true God. So I, I think that the form of argument that uh, he is making here is not that the Trinity itself is taught in the Old Testament. In fact, he seems to not think that explicitly but that the Trinity then later is revealed in the New Testament. But then once we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, we can look back at the Old Testament and some of the data points that were perhaps hard to make sense of in the Old Testament suddenly make better sense in light of the revelation of the Trinity. So that's an interesting form of argument. And I'll say I'm not against the idea that there are some things that were unclear in the Old Testament. And then when the New Testament comes around, we receive new revelation and that helps clarify the Old Testament, even if it's surprised or was confusing to people. Like, I think the idea of a crucified Messiah was quite surprising to the Jewish people and was hard to understand. But then looking back, you can see passages like Isaiah 53 or other places making sort of more sense and fitting in together. And so I think the, the overall structure of the argument is not something that I would disagree with. I just don't think that it works in particular for the doctrine of the Trinity. So I'm going to skip ahead. He's going to go through a couple Old Testament examples of things that make more sense in light of the doctrine of the Trinity, and then I'll give some responses to that. One, there's this peculiar figure throughout the Old Testament, frequently called the angel of the Lord. He pops up all over the place, and he seems to be portrayed as a divine figure. For example, he receives worship. In Joshua 5, most people think this is the same figure called the commander of the armies of the Lord. 
And basically, not only does he receive worship, but the ground is made holy because of him, such that Joshua has to take off his sandals. This is a clear echo of God's revelation of himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. There's lots of echoes between Moses and Joshua uh, throughout the book of Joshua, showing Joshua is the new leader of God's people after Moses. And yet, this isn't just a straight-up theophany either, because this figure is referred to as a man. He appears to come in a human-like form. He's got a sword in his hand, and he has the title, the commander of the army of the Lord, which seems to differentiate him from the Lord. All right. So the whole topic of the angel of the Lord is a complex subject. And I'll just say, well, I'll address the first point first. So um, he mentions that this angel is worshipped, but the Hebrew word here really just means to bow down. It is not actually the full cultic reverential worship that is commanded to only be given to God. Lots of people receive bowing in the Old Testament. Humans, judges, kings, masters, and also, yes, angels. And so it's not actually a violation of the command to only worship God because perhaps the English word worship here isn't actually the best translation. It really means to bow down in a way that's giving reverence and veneration. I actually have a presentation that I gave at the Unitarian Christian Conference um, last year that's on the topic of should we worship Jesus? And it goes into this in more detail. I'll leave that in the show notes if anyone is curious about that. But on the broader topic of the angel of the Lord, um, I, I think he, he mentions this, maybe not, I didn't play this part of the clip, but this, this theology is actually somewhat controversial and mixed in Christian history. For example, Augustine did not think that the appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament were an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus. He argued that they were just angelically mediated, and most of Western Christian Christianity after him followed that. I think most Protestants and basically all Catholics do not hold that position because of Augustine. The Eastern Orthodox Church, however, does hold that position. And some Protestants starting in the 18 and 1900s also started to hold that position again. Although I think ironically, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure the first denomination to start teaching that were the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it actually fits pretty well with their theology, I'll say. But back in ancient Jewish times and like the Second Temple period, there were sort of two views on the angel of the Lord. There was what you could call two powers in heaven Judaism, although I'll say there really actually isn't good evidence of two powers in heaven Judaism before the second century. Some people might dispute that. I'm open to disputation on that, but I'm just going to say that. And that was basically the idea that there's a high God and then there's like a lower God who represents the high God and does things on his behalf in his name, and it can be called a God. And that this person, Christians in the tradition, connected with the pre-incarnate Jesus, and so that the pre-incarnate Jesus is like an emissary of the high God, and he does things. So when God appears, it's actually not the high God, because the high God's invisible, it's the secondary God that could be the pre-incarnate Jesus. And then there was an alternative view in Judaism and an alternative view in early Christianity that these were just angelically mediated theophanies, that there wasn't even perhaps some special angel called the angel of the Lord. It's just the angel that's showing up that time or the angel in service of God at that particular theophany, but that it wasn't some figure that was of any noteworthy importance and it wasn't connected to the pre-incarnate Jesus. So I'm actually going to read a quote from the book of Hebrews that I think shows pretty clearly that... Um, that the early Christians, at least the ones that wrote the scriptures, 
believed in angelically mediated theophanies. Because one thing that if you had this two powers of heaven form of Christology, you would say that the pre-incarnate Jesus appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the law. And I'll actually show quotes from later church fathers that believe that sort of thing. And so you would say that the old covenant was mediated through the pre-incarnate Jesus. And so I think that Hebrews directly contradicts that idea. So this is from Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard it, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what Hebrews does multiple times is it parallels and contrasts the Old Covenants. It'll say, or the, the Old New Covenant, it'll say the Old Covenant was good, and then the New Covenant is better. And the Old Covenant is not through Jesus, and the New Covenant is through Jesus. And here, specifically in this passage, it says that the testimony or the message declared by angels was reliable and transgressions received a retribution. So that is the Old Covenant was given to the Jewish people through angelic mediation. But there is a new covenant, a new great salvation declared through Jesus, and we need to hear it and we need to listen to it even more than the Jews needed to listen to the old covenant. And so it's paralleling and contrasting the two covenants and saying that angels delivered the old covenant, which directly contradicts two powers in heaven style. Jesus was the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And in general, I don't think the angel of the Lord was that confusing to Jewish people. The Jewish people had a form of a belief in agency where an agent could be sent on behalf of someone sending them and they would bear their name, they would bear their authority, and the person receiving that agent should treat that agent as if it is the person who sent them. A king could send an emissary or an ambassador to another kingdom, and God can send angels. And so when you're talking to an angel that's sent by God, you should give it the reverence and respect that you owe to God, and you can even call that angel God. And if it sounds confusing, how could you call an angel God? I would ask, how many times have you called your phone, dear honey, or my wife, or mom, or something like that? Is your phone your mom? No, but you use your phone to talk to your mom. And so the reason why you can call your phone mom is because it is basically the agent of your mom through whom you're communicating. This idea isn't that confusing. I don't think Jews were confused about this back in the day. I don't think they would have seen the doctrine of the Trinity and be like, oh, now we know who the angel of the Lord is, thank heavens. I, I just don't think that's the way this worked. So I'll move on to the next point. Put up number two is Psalm 110. Same kind of deal here. You have this kind of puzzling differentiation within God. I'm sure this passage really puzzled the rabbis. You know, you think of 1 Peter 1 where it talks about they're looking ahead, trying to discern the times. I'm sure this was one of those passages that Peter had in mind. Who is this figure differentiated from the Lord, yet nonetheless Lord over David, verse 1, and ruling the nations, verse 2 and following. I'm actually a little bit surprised Gavin brought up this passage. Um, if you've ever heard a debate between a biblical Unitarian and a Trinitarian, I guarantee you almost certainly that the biblical Unitarians brought up Psalm 110. It's actually one of our favorite passages. We feel like it explains our theology perfectly well. Um, that the the Lord, and I'll, um, I'll agree with what Gavin does here. I think that 
when it comes to pronouncing the tetragrammaton, I, you, you can certainly find videos on me on you, of YouTube where I do pronounce it. But I do think that I've seen some people be a little bit too cavalier with the tetragrammaton on YouTube, and some Christian apologists are just a little too cavalier with it, which I think borders on using it in vain. So I'll, I'll follow Gavin's example, at least for this video, and not pronounce the tetragrammaton, but just call it the tetragrammaton. So the tetragrammaton says to my Lord, and the word Lord here is actually in most manuscript traditions and most scholars think actually Adoni, not Adonai. Adonai is a word that can mean Lord and it can mean God or it can mean a human Lord. But Adoni is a word that only ever refers to humans. And like if you go to Jerusalem now and speak modern Hebrew and you hail a taxi driver, you might call him Adon, which is just like the same word. It kind of means like sir or mister or master or Lord, something along those lines. So the fact that Psalm 110 is differentiating between the Tetragrammaton singular person God who is speaking to the Messiah and the Messiah is given a title that is only appropriate for humans and is not fit for a God, that I think is a clear sign of differentiation between God and his Messiah. Did this passage puzzle uh, rabbis? Well, yes, because when Jesus brings it up, he actually asked the Pharisees a question. It's one of the very few times he asks a question instead of answering questions. And he says, what do you think about the Christ? Again, Jesus is telling us that this passage is in fact messianic. Whose son is he? How, uh, the son of David, they said. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? And then uh, Jesus says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And I think the obvious answer to the question that wasn't obvious back then is that the Messiah is God's son in addition to being the son of David. And that's why David, even though Jesus is his descendant, can call him Lord because he is also the son of God. Um, and so, again, I actually think this passage is fits hand in glove with biblical Unitarian Christology because how could a member of the Godhead be invited by someone else to sit at their right hand? That is an act of giving someone authority and giving someone prominence. A member of the Godhead could not get promoted in power or prominence, uh, but a human being being exalted to the eternal glory and power at the right hand of God can, which is biblical Unitarian Christology. And why would God not have enemies under his feet already. So like, it just doesn't make sense to me how this could really fit with a Trinitarian Christology. So I'm actually a little bit surprised that Gavin brought it up. It's almost like this argument would only make sense if you already thought the Messiah was God, that you would find this confusing or an example of multi-personality in the Godhood. If you already thought the Messiah was God, well, then you see two persons being talked about. But if you don't think the Messiah is in the Godhead, then this just like makes obvious and perfect sense. So I'm going to move on to the next passage. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a little surprised he brought that one up. I didn't think that that was a good one. Um, he talks about Zechariah for a little bit, 1210. Um, I'll just say that there are grammatical issues with the passage, and he admits as such in, in that portion of the video, to be fair to him. So I'm just going to move on to um, Isaiah 9-6. Another prophecy of a divine Messiah is Isaiah 9-6, where among the titles by which the Messiah is lauded is El Gibur, or Mighty God. Now, Jewish interpreters will often say that this re refers to King Hezekiah because that's what the name means, mighty God, or you could translate it God's. But this is a very forced way, I think, to get around the plain language, because in context, mighty God is one of four appellations, not just telling us his name, but 
telling us his greatness and describing his reign and his saving activity for God's people. Why would you have? Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and say that I, I actually do think this passage is about King Hezekiah. And I do think that some passages in the Old Testament have a meaning and an interpretation that is local to their own particular context. But then they can also have a Christological reapplication where there is a second layer of meaning that applies to Jesus in the New Testament. And I think this is one of those passages that has both. But I think if you read pretty clearly, you know, this is a son that's being born in Isaiah's day. And so I'm pretty sure that uh, and that Jewish commentators and most biblical commentators would agree that this is referring, at least in its local context, to King Hezekiah. And so I just think it's possible that a human can be called things like mighty God. And the I think we underestimate in the Jewish context in the Middle East how glorious and exalted of appellations a king or an important human could be given that in no way contradicted or diminished from the uniqueness of the unipersonal God above them. It was common to give kings divine titles of some degree or another, both in Hebrew culture and in their neighboring cultures. And this is an example of that. And there are also many examples in the Old Testament where humans get called God. Moses gets called God a couple of times. I will make you God to Pharaoh. Human judges in the Old Testament get called by the word God. And so I think that it is just not out of the realm of possibility for titles like mighty God to be applied to humans. One alternative idea is that the, the word here is El Gabor, like God is mighty um, or God mighty. And it could actually just be a theophoric name such that a lot of the names, including Isaiah, have either Yah as representing half of the Tetragrammaton or El as representing the word Elohim for God. And so a lot of kings would have a name or important figures in the Old Testament have a, a have their name in some way magnify or glorify God. Um, like Samuel, my own name, means requested of God or like God heard me or something like that. And so El Gabor could just be a theophoric name for Hezekiah too where it's saying that God is mighty, but it's not saying that Isaiah is, or that Hezekiah is the God that's mighty. But even if it is referring directly to Hezekiah, I don't think that's out of the realm of the use of language of the word God in the Old Testament in the ways they can refer to human beings. And uh, that brings me to the next argument where we're going to talk about Psalm 45, which I think is another example of the same thing, but I'll let... Um, uh, the video go first. Number five, Psalm 45, another messianic psalm, another instance of a kind of differentiation within God. If God is one in a strict Unitarian sense, who is God's God? Now, this is, again, a difficult passage, and even some Christians interpret this as strictly a reference to David's throne and scepter here. But it seems like God is the one addressed here in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever, therefore God, your God. And uh, in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, we have some, I would say we can take our cues from the New Testament for how to read this. I'm not assuming that for the sake of argument, but for Christians, you could certainly say that. But here, just from the, from the psalm itself, you're wondering, why does it speak to God and refer to his God? Well, Christians... All right, so I actually think that this is another example of the phenomenon that I was just talking about 
So in a lot of scriptural commentaries, historians and otherwise will think that Psalm 45 is about, again, King Hezekiah, or if it's not Hezekiah, maybe one of the other Davidic kings like David or someone else. And so I think that this is an example of the king being called your throne, O God, and that O God here can refer to the human king. And it gives lots of other flowery language to the human king. Your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Um, God has anointed you with an oil of gladness beyond your companions. So I should also say when it comes to say, therefore God, your God, in Hebrew, it's therefore tetragrammaton, your Elohim, right? Tetragrammaton is the name for the Hebrew God. And your Elohim is more like a generic word saying he is your deity. Basically, God, your deity, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So it is distinguishing, again, between God in the highest sense of the word and this human figure who is called O God. But again, also, even though this passage is about a Hebrew king in the Old Testament, it has a Christological reapplication. Uh, Hebrews 1 makes that perfectly clear. It says that this is to the son, the father speaking to the son. Um, but uh, I should say, um, I think Gavin said, if God is God in a strict Unitarian monotheistic sense, who would be God's God? Well, my question would be, if God is God in a Trinitarian sense, how could the second member of the Trinity have a God above him? To have a God is different than recognizing someone else as God. Theoretically, two co-equal persons in the Godhead could each say to each other, you're God, you're God, you're God, etc. But they couldn't say, you are my God. To say that someone is my God with that possessive sense is to recognize that there's a God above you, over you, that they have authority over you, that you're subordinate to them, and that you owe them worship and submission and those sorts of things. So one person of the Godhead, if they are co-equal, could not recognize another member of the Godhead as being their own God in the sense of them being above them the way that it mentions here. And also, how could one member of the Godhead anoint one of the other members of the Godhead? That doesn't make too much sense to me. I'll let a Trinitarian explain that. But anyway, I think that this is another passage where we see that humans can be called with divine titles, and it doesn't violate the monotheism of the Old Testament. And there is a clear differentiation here between the one true God, the highest God, the Tetragrammaton, and the Messiah whom he anoints. All right. I'll move on to the last passage that he quotes here. Last example, Micah 7, 9, the prophet says, he will bear the Lord's indignation until he, that is the Lord, pleads my case for me. The Puritans used this passage to explicate the doctrine of Christ's intercession. But in terms of strict Unitarian monotheism, to whom does God plead? All right, I'll take a stab at that question. So I think, oh, whoops, I forgot to include this passage. I'll go back here and just pull it up in the video. Come on, where is it there? All right, so when it says, he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. This is just poetic language of saying that God is on your side, that God is with you, not against you, and God is taking your side against your enemies. I don't think that this necessarily requires the interpretation of multi-personality in the Godhead. It's just saying that God is compassionately helping you. And I, I'll also say this. Let's imagine that there is a tripersonal Godhead that's co-equal, 
according to Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine, they all members of the Trinity have one will together and they all have one knowledge together. How could one member of the Trinity who's united in will with a different member of the Trinity plead a case of someone to a different member of the Trinity? That wouldn't make sense because that would imply a differentiation in will. And what would he need to plead? The per All persons of the Trinity know everything together, theoretically. So I just don't see how the Trinity would even help explain this. And I'll also point out that all of the pronouns here referring to God are singular. None of them are plural and nor is there any indication that it's talking from one member of the Godhead to the other. So I just don't think that this passage does what uh, Gavin is hoping that it does. And so that covers that video. So that's just sort of my commentary on that. Before I go into my explanation of church history and the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, I'm going to play a clip, a clip from this other video where Gavin explains a little bit more about his approach to historical theology. Protestant to try to clarify and explain what is the Protestant view. Our concern is that this is a historical accretion or a historical innovation, something that gradually comes into the picture and it's not actually authentically related to the first century, to the teaching of the apostles, to the biblical instruction, to something Jesus ever taught us to do. And, uh, it, you know, in other words, another way you could put it is what changed in the third century? Why did we suddenly start seeing this there? And because of that, we'd say these later medieval practices that are, from our vantage point, consti constitutive of idolatry. Uh, these are not simply abuses of something good, but this is actually an alien practice that has come into the church. It's not something that's... So Gavin there talks a little bit about the idea of accretions that develop slowly over time, and that our goal is to look to the first century church as the authority, and our goal is to understand and believe the apostolic deposit of faith, which is what Jesus himself taught to his apostles. And this is another reason why I want to talk with Gavin, is we share that same methodology together. I actually really like a lot of his videos where he's criticizing the development of various Catholic doctrines, like whether it's praying to the saints or various Marian dogmas or purgatory. I think that a lot of those videos were really good, where he goes through and basically historically argues that they were later developments and not part of the apostolic teaching. So that's exactly what I'm going to transition to do now, except I'm going to talk about the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, because I think if he, if we subject the doctrine of the Trinity to the same scrutiny that he has put other doctrines to, that we will also see that it's a historical accretion onto the apostolic faith that developed over time, slowly, step by step by step, and that it is not part of the apostolic teaching, and therefore we Protestants should reject it based off of the grounds of our historical method. So that's what I'm going to do in the second half of this video. So basically, what I think is in the anti-Nicene period, there were four camps of Christology. And I'm going to show this uh, over the course of a series of quotes. I think these four camps were biblical Unitarians. Obviously, they weren't called that back then. Um, sometimes historians will call them adoptionists, although I don't think that's the right word because basically none of them, as far as I can tell, believe that Christ was adopted as son of God. If you believe in the virgin birth, then you don't believe that Jesus was adopted and you're not an adoptionist. So I think that's a bad label. Sometimes they're called dynamic monarchians. In the olden days, back in the anti-Nicene period, I think they were mostly called monarchians. Monarchian is actually basically a way of saying Unitarian, 
archaic was a way it, it sometimes means beginning but also means authority like monarchy and so um it was common for theologians to refer to god as the monarch and so if you are a monoarche, then you only believe in one God in heaven. So it's basically the same word as Unitarian. Um, but anyway, biblical Unitarians, they believe Jesus began to exist as a human and that he was exalted to divine status after death and that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what he did. A Logos incarnation theology would believe that the Logos is created by God and brought out of God and it becomes like a second subordinate God and that the second subordinate Logos God becomes incarnate in Mary and then ascends back to heaven. And then a modalist Christology would say that the Logos is an aspect of the one God who becomes incarnate in Mary and ascends back to heaven. And so instead of the Logos being the second begotten God, it is the part of the one true highest God, and so the highest God becomes incarnate. And then there are various Gnostic Christologies. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about them, but I will at least admit and say that they are there in early Christianity. Um, and this would say that Jesus was a spiritual messenger from God of highest heaven, who never takes on flesh, but only appears in human form. The reason I'm not going to take uh, this side very seriously is I believe that they are condemned and criticized in the New Testament itself, especially 1 John chapter 4. And so I, I will kind of not talk about them anymore, but I will that the Gnostics were there early enough to even show up within the New Testament itself. So how can we tell the differences between these Christologies when we're looking at various uh, human writers from that period? So if you ask the question, is Jesus the highest God, then biblical Unitarians and Logos incarnationalists will say no. A modalist will say yes, but a Gnostic would say no. Um, did Jesus create the world? A biblical Unitarian will say no. A Logos incarnationalist will say yes. They think that the highest God sort of gave direction and order to the second God to create the world and that God made the world through this Logos intermediary. And so they would say that the pre-incarnate Jesus created the world. Modalists would, of course, say yes. Gnostics, no, because the Gnostics didn't think that the world was created by a good God. They thought it was created by a bad God. Um, did Jesus pre-exist? Biblical Unitarians would say no. All three other camps would say yes, that he pre-existed his human career, or Gnostics wouldn't even say he was human. Um, is Jesus human? Uh, the top three would say yes, although Biblical Unitarians seem to think Jesus is slightly more human than the Logos Incarnationalists and Modalists do. They think that he had a human origin. A Gnostic would say no to that question. Is Jesus divine? And this connects to the point I made at the beginning of my video, that yes, actually, biblical Unitarians do believe in the divinity of Jesus in a certain sense. It's just a different view of the divinity of Jesus than the other camps. All four camps believe in the divinity of Jesus. And so then the last question is, is highest God a single person? Or in other words, are they Unitarian in the broader sense of the word, of just believing that the highest God is a unipersonal God? And all four camps are yes. Biblical Unitarians, of course, even the Logos Incarnationalists, they think that Jesus is the second God, but they think the highest God is a unipersonal God. Modalists, yes. Gnostics, they also, even the Gnostics agreed with that idea, actually. Um, so I'm going to go through a timeline and I'm going to look at various historical figures and their writings or what we know about them and put them into the different camps and put the different camps on this timeline to see what that can tell us about the development of doctrine. Um, so the first figure, I'm going to go through the biblical Unitarians first, and then I'll do the other camps second. So Clement of Rome, 
He was the second or third bishop of Rome. He uh, he wrote a letter to Corinthians to the Corinthians somewhere between it was after the deaths of Peter and Paul, but sometime before 96 A.D. So it's sometime in that early period. It's one of the earliest Christian writings we have outside the New Testament, and it's possibly even written before some of the things that are in the New Testament. It could even be older than the Gospel of John, for example. Uh, Clement of Rome says this. Let all the nations know that you are God alone and Jesus Christ, your son, and we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. I think that Trinitarians sometimes have a weird way of being able to read sentences like this and not really notice exactly what they're saying. When someone says that one person is God alone, that's what they mean. So when this epistle says that it believes that God is God alone and Jesus Christ is that singular God's son, that's saying that Jesus Christ is not the highest God. But how would we know if Clement of Rome was a Logos incarnationalist or a biblical Unitarian? There are actually other passages, and I think the clearest examples I would give are two uh, passages. I actually don't have them in here because they were a little bit long. But just to be brief, Clement of Rome, when he references the Genesis creation, he attributed, attributes the Genesis creation to God the Father alone, whereas a Logos incarnationalist will say that the pre-incarnate Jesus made the creation at the direction and orders of God the Father. And so that's another hint that he's a biblical Unitarian. The last hint that he's a biblical Unitarian is when he describes the law being given to Moses, he attributes that to God the Father. And as I mentioned back in the Angel of the Lord discussion, a biblical Unitarian would believe that God the Father gave the law to Moses through angels, whereas a Logos incarnationalist would attribute the giving of the law to Moses to the pre-incarnate second God, which is Jesus. And so those are pretty clear hints, I would say, that Clement of Rome belongs to the biblical Unitarian camp. And I'll even give some contextual reasons later on in this presentation to back up the idea that Clement of Rome was a biblical Unitarian. I won't say I'm 100% sure about Clement of Rome, but I would put a pretty high probability on him being a biblical Unitarian. Um, I, the reason why I would hold back a little bit is the epistle to the Corinthians is relatively short, and it doesn't talk about Christology in great detail. So it's not explicit, but I think that there are multiple clues that make it relatively clear which camp to put it in. Um, so that puts Clement of Rome here on our timeline. Okay, um, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is obviously not a biblical Unitarian, but he gives witness to the existence of biblical Unitarianism in his time. So he wrote a book called The Dialogue with Trifo, where Trifo is a Jewish dialogue opponent that he's arguing with. So Trifo the Jew says this, for when you say that this Christ existed as God before the ages, then that he submitted to be born and became man, yet that he is not man of men, this assertion appears to be to not be merely paradoxical, but also foolish. So Trifle is basically saying, uh, hey, Justin, you're saying that this Christ existed as a God prior to uh, the time, the ages of time, and then he became a man? that doesn't make much sense. And so then Justin gives this response. I know that the statement does not appear to, does appear to be paradoxical, especially to those of your race who are ever unwilling to understand or to perform the requirements of God. Now, assuredly, Trifo, the proof that this man is the Christ of God does not fail, though I be unable to prove that he existed formerly as son of the maker of all things, being God and was born a man by the virgin. So basically that first half, Justin is saying, I've already proved to you, Trifo, in our argument that Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he's the Christ. But even if I fail to prove that he is 
this God who existed as a son of the maker of all things, basically a God who is underneath highest God, is that uh, even if I can't prove that to you, Trifo, at least let me prove to you that he was the Messiah. And then I'll continue on. But since I have certainly proved that this man is the Christ of God, whoever he be, even if I do not prove that he preexisted, in this last matter alone, is it just to say that I have erred and not to deny that he is the Christ, though it should appear that he was born man of men and nothing more is proved than this. So basically, Justin is saying, I'm content to prove to you that he's the Messiah, but I'm going to try to prove to you even more than that, that he preexisted. But that seems to suggest that he believes that salvation isn't dependent on believing in the preexistence of Christ. It's dependent on believing that Jesus just is the Christ. And that preexistence is a doctrine that he wants to prove, but it's not necessary for him to prove such. Um, all right, continuing on. For there are some, my friends of our race, who admit that he is the Christ while holding him to be man of men with whom I do not agree, nor would I, even though most of those who now have the same opinions as myself should say so, since we were enjoined by Christ himself to put no faith in human doctrines, but in those proclaimed by the blessed prophets and taught by God himself. So what Justin says there is that he has friends who are members of his own race. His own race means um, Christians, not Gentiles. Christianity was basically treated as a race at this point in time. And so he knows fellow Christians that he's theoretically in communion with, maybe even who go to his church, who admit that Jesus is the Messiah, but hold him to be a man of men. In other words, a human being who did not pre-exist. Justin doesn't agree with them, but they exist. And Justin says, I wouldn't agree with them, even though most of the people who hold the same opinions as myself, basically, even though most Christians would say that Jesus is a man of men, I disagree with them. And he gives an argument why saying that we are told to no, put no faith in human doctrines. And I think the idea is, is if Jesus was merely a man, then his doctrines would be human doctrines. And so we're supposed to believe in divine doctrines. So that's a reason to believe in the preexistent divinity of Jesus. But one could just say, well, if God gives divine doctrines to a man to speak, doesn't that mean that they're divine doctrines? But anyway, what, what Justin is saying here is that most of the Christians that he knows don't believe in the preexistence of Jesus. In other words, they're biblical Unitarians. And he's also saying that he is in communion with them. And he also, as I mentioned, seems to suggest that all that uh, Trifo needs to be saved is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Believing that Jesus preexisted as a divine being is extra, and Justin's trying to argue for that, but it's not he's content to just have proved that Jesus is the Messiah and not be able to prove the divinity uh, or the preexistent divinity, I should say. So I think that this is a very interesting passage. It shows both very firmly that biblical Unitarianism existed. Seemingly, it was the majority of the Christians that Justin knew and that the two camps seemed to be able to get along with each other. In other words, that the preexistence of Christ was not a first-tier doctrine, it was a third-tier doctrine according to those four tiers that Gavin mentioned. So I think this is a really fascinating passage. Um, so then Trifo finishes the, this passage by saying, those who affirm him to have been a man and to have been anointed by election and then to have become Christ appear to me to speak more plausibly than you who hold those opinions which you which you express. For we all expect that Christ will be a man of men, but if this man appears to be Christ, he must certainly be known as a man of men. So Trifo is saying that the Jewish expectation 
is that the Messiah will be a human being who gets anointed and then is the Christ once he has been anointed by God. And so Justin Martyr often expresses some opinions that I would say are relatively anti-Jewish. He seems to hold a relatively low opinion of the Jewish people in his time. I won't accuse him of anti-Semitism. I think that's a little anachronistic, but I will say he does seem prejudiced against Jews. And I think that perhaps one can see that the Jewish doctrine that uh, the Messiah would be a man fits more naturally with the Jewish mindset and the idea that the Messiah would be a pre-existent divinity who comes down fits more with the Gentile mindset. And I'll just ask, which mindset should we trust more? I'll, and I'll, I'll move on from there. So we can say that Justin Martyr witnesses to biblical Unitarianism around 150 AD, even though, like I said, Justin Martyr is obviously not one himself. All right, Theotis of Byzantium. Okay, I'm going to read this passage. Hippolytus is writing about a guy named Theodotus who was a couple decades before Hippolytus is writing. According to this, Theodotus maintains that Jesus was a mere man, born of a virgin according to the counsel of the Father. He subsequently, at his baptism in the Jordan, received Christ, who came from above and descended upon him in the form of a dove. And this was the reason why miraculous powers did not operate within him prior to the manifestation in him of that spirit which descended. But among the followers of Theodotus, some are disposed to think that this man never was made God, whereas others maintain that he was made God after the resurrection of the dead. So Hippolytus is saying that there is this guy named Theodotus who was teaching that Jesus was a man of men, the virgin birth, that he became the Christ when he received the Holy Spirit at his baptism, and that some of the people in this camp didn't think that he was made God, while others say that he was made divine or God after his resurrection. So again, this is my point. In the early, in the early periods, even the biblical Unitarians would affirm the divinity of Jesus, excuse me, affirm the divinity of Jesus at some point in time. It's just that he became divine after his resurrection from the dead. A little bit more that we can know about Theodotus and Artemis comes from this passage from Eusebius of Caesarea. For, uh, and Eusebius is quoting a historian that wrote before him. So he, this historian, criticizes as a late innovation the above-mentioned heresy, which teaches that the Savior was a mere man, because they were attempting to magnify it as ancient, having given in his work many other arguments in refutation of their blasphemous falsehoods. He has the following words. So what I should say is, interestingly, we have this debate between Logos Incarnation theologians and biblical Unitarians, and they're arguing about which of their teachings is ancient and which of their teachings is a late innovation. And so this points in my mind that even in this early church period, they didn't believe in the development of doctrine. They believed that there was an original teaching and that they should stick to the original teaching. And so this is a argument against the development of the, the idea of the development of doctrine or something like that. I think Beth, Gavin and I would both agree with that point. All right, continuing on. For they say that all the early teachers and the apostles received and taught what they now declare, and that the truth of the gospel was preserved until the times of Victor, who is the 13th bishop of Rome from Peter, but that from his successors, Aphorinus, the truth had been corrupted. And what they might say, and what they say might be plausible if, first of all, the divine scriptures did not contradict them. And there are writings of certain brethren older than the times of Victor. 
I refer to Justin and Miltiades and Tatian and Clement and many others, in all of whose works Christ is spoken of as God. How then, since the opinion held by the church has been preached for so many years, can its preaching have been delayed, as they affirm, until the times of victor? How is it that they are not ashamed to thus speak falsely of victor, knowing well that he cut off communion from Theodotus the cobbler, the leader and father of this God-denying apostasy, and the first to declare that Christ was a mere man? So basically, we can see that the early biblical Unitarians were arguing in the early third century that the Roman bishops, up until the time of Victor, who's in the early 200s AD, were biblical Unitarians. And only after that time did Logos Incarnation Theology come to be teached in Rome. I don't think that, I think that Eusebius is slightly mischaracterizing their points. I think that they wouldn't disagree that the um, the Logos Incarnation Theology might have existed in some of these other people like Justin, but that it wasn't what was taught in Rome, and that at the time of Victor, it got turned around, and Zephyrinus after them were non-biblical Unitarians. And so you have to remember that Theodotus and Artemon, this other biblical Unitarian, were in Rome at that time. So when they're arguing that, hey, the Roman bishops before us taught what we're teaching now— they're doing it at the time and place that they're making that point. So it's not entirely likely that they would be wrong. And I should also say that among the people that Eusebius points out, none of them are bishops of Rome. And the Clement he's mentioning there is Clement of Alexandria, not Clement of Rome. And so Eusebius is unable to give an example of a bishop of Rome who, prior to Victor, believed in Logos Incarnation. Um, so I think that this is an interesting historical testimony. Another thing that I'll say is we notice in Justin Martyr that he seemed to be able to get along with biblical Unitarians, but Eusebius of Caesarea, who I should point out is an Arian, is uh, calling biblical Unitarianism a God-denying apostasy. So that's slightly less tolerant language. So in addition to the development of the Trinity over time, I think there's also a development in the antipathy against biblical Unitarianism over time, whereas it was tolerated even by people who disagreed with it in the second century. By the fourth, early fourth century, when Eusebius is writing, and I think even earlier, it becomes to be seen as heretical when it wasn't seen as heretical by Justin. All right, so we can point out that Artemon and Theodotus in the late second and early third century are another uh, witnesses to biblical Unitarian theology. All right, Novation is another person who gives witness to biblical Unitarian theology. I'll read this passage. They who say that Jesus Christ is the Father argue as follows. So first he's talking about Bible. If God is one and Christ is God, Christ is the Father, since God is one. If Christ be not the Father, because Christ is God the Son, there appear to be two gods introduced. So he's put he's giving voice to the argument from modalists who say that if you say that the God the Son is a different God than God the Father, then you've got two gods. Why not just say that God the Father was incarnate in Jesus and only have one God? And they who contend that Christ is man only conclude on the other hand thus, if the Father is one and the Son another, but the Father is God and Christ is God, then there is not one God, but two gods are at once introduced. And the Father and the Son, if God is one, by consequence, Christ must be a man, so that rightly the Father may be one God. Thus, indeed, the Lord is, as it were, crucified between two thieves, and thus either side he receives the sacrilegious reproaches of such heretics as these. 
So basically what Novation is saying is that in order to avoid the idea that there are two gods, the modalists go one direction and say Jesus is God the Father, and the biblical Unitarians go the other direction and say that Jesus is not God. And so what Novation will try to do, and I'll read Novation's on theology later in this presentation, is that he'll, he'll try and make this sort of double God thing work out in between those two errors. Um, but you'll also notice that he says that, you know, they are sacrilegious and they're heretics for believing either of these things. So again, different from Justin, you start to see the idea that this theology is heretical among the Logos Incarnation theologians, and Novation is the Logos Incarnation theologian. Although I would point out to Novation, wasn't one of those thieves actually declared righteous? It's not like both of the thieves were unrighteous. One of the thieves was righteous, so maybe that isn't the best historical example. All right, but we at least have Novation giving witness to biblical Unitarianism. He's writing in Rome, again, in the middle of the third century. All right, there was a guy named Paul of Samosata. He was the bishop of Antioch from 260 AD to 272 AD. I should say that the bishop of Antioch was one of the three most positions in the church at this time. The three most important positions were the bishop of Antioch, bishop of Rome, and bishop of Alexandria. And so this is an extremely high and exalted position in the church. And Paul of Samosata was given this position as bishop, as a biblical Unitarian in 260 AD. So even though there are people like Novation writing against uh, biblical Unitarianism about a decade before Paul of Samosata becomes bishop, clearly the whole empire didn't hold Novation's uh, beliefs. And so people like Paul of Samosata could get elected as bishop with biblical Unitarian Christologies. Here are some quotes from Paul of Samosata. Jesus was not before Mary, but received from her the origin of his being. Um, the Christ did wonders according to grace, that is, he received the power to do miracles. And the Lord was divinized. So again, Paul is Samosata, and that's the word apotheosis. He believes that Jesus became divine. So again, biblical Unitarians affirm the divinity of Christ just in a different sense. Here's another longer quote from Paul of Samosata. Having been anointed by the Holy Spirit, he received the title of the Christ suffering in accordance with his nature, working wonders in accordance with grace, for in fixity and resoluteness of character, he likened himself to God, and having kept himself free from sin, was united with God. He was empowered to grasp, as it were, the power and authority of wonders. By these he was shown to possess over and above the will, one and the same energy or activity with God, and won the title of Redeemer and Savior of our race." So we can see here that Jesus gets anointed with the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is like such a morally perfect person who through resoluteness and fixity of character becomes like God. In other words, he goes through a process of theosis, you could say, where he becomes unified with God such that he has the power to do wonders and miracles and that his will is so united with God that whatever Christ wills to do is what God wills to do because there's a perfect unity of will and cooperation as opposed to, and it, basically a Logos incarnationalist would say that there's a divine nature and a human nature in a union in the one person. But Paul Samosada would say that Christ has one nature, right? He says suffering in accordance with his nature. Basically, Jesus has a human nature that could suffer. But this human nature becomes united through cooperative and participative divinity with God. So again, 
there's actually a pretty high Christology there in that a human being becomes united with the activity and will of God, but it's a human who starts out from below and then becomes like God. Um, I should say that Paul of Samosata, of course, will get excommunicated and even, I would say, killed by the Roman Empire on the request of the uh, Logos Incarnation uh, Christians. And so he does get excommunicated and condemned for his beliefs in his lifetime. It's actually a pretty long, complicated story with a lot of political intrigue. I have a video about it. I'll put that in the description. If you're curious about more to learn more about Paul of Samosata, you can find it there, but I'll move on for now. Um, well, one more quote about Paul of Samosata. This is Athanasius describing Paul of Samosata. Since the Samosatine held that the son was not before Mary, but received from her the origin of his being, therefore they pronounced him a heretic. For they directed all their thoughts to destroy the devices of the Samosatine and to show that the Son was before all things, and that instead of becoming God from man, he, being God, had put on a servant's form, and being word, had become flesh, as John says. This is how they dealt with the blasphemies of Paul. So I actually think that Athanasius is correctly describing Paul's theology here, that Jesus didn't pre-exist, and that he was a man who became God. And, or divine, maybe, is a better translation. Whereas for Athanasius and other Logos incarnationalists, God becomes man. So I think that's really the contrast between the two ideas. So we've got Paul of Samosata in the 260s and 270s AD testifying to biblical Unitarianism. All right, and then the last person I'll mention is a guy named Photinus of Galatia. He was the bishop of Sirmium. Sirmium was a pretty important city. It was right at the crossroads of the eastern and western halves of the empire. There were a bunch of councils in Sirmium in that sort of intermediary period in the fourth century. And Photinus actually gets excommunicated at a council that he was hosting. Not particularly nice, I would say. But some people think that like, you know, the Council of Nicaea came and like all Christians were suddenly Trinitarian overnight and that it was like universally declared throughout the land. And that's just not true. There were biblical Unitarian bishops rightfully appointed to their positions in the mainstream church, even until the 350s AD. So here are some of the anathemas from that council that you can tell are describing uh, Photinus's theology. Whoever says that according to foreknowledge, the son is before Mary and not that generated from the father before ages, he was with God and that through him all things were originated, be he anathema, right? So you can see the differences between the two theologies. Photinus thinks that Christ preexisted in the foreknowledge of God, but not being with God. Um, whoever says that the son of son from Mary is man only, be he anathema. Whoever explains, I God the first and I the last, and besides me there is no God, Isaiah 44, 6, which is said for the denial of idols and of gods that are not, to the denial of the only begotten before ages God, as Jews do, be he anathema. So basically you can understand Photinus quoting that quote, that there is no other God besides me as an argument against the theology of his day because he believes in a Unitarian monotheistic God as the Jews do. And again, there is this idea that you see a lot in the Logos theologians that biblical Unitarianism too closely resembles Judaism and the sort of anti-Jewish or even borderline anti-Semitic attitude gets um, projected onto biblical Unitarianism. Uh, whoever says that let us make was not said by the father to the son, but by God to himself, be he anathema. Uh, okay, I'll move on from there. So we've got 
all of these people, either who are biblical Unitarians or at least give witness to biblical Unitarianism in their writing. So we've got the first century, the second century, the third century, and into the fourth century even of biblical Unitarianism. And there doesn't seem to be much development in it. It seems pretty stable in terms of its core teaching. And it seems to date back to apostolic times and Clement of Rome firsthand knew Peter and Paul. So I don't think one can theologically or historically say that biblical Unitarianism developed over time and is an accretion onto the apostolic witness. One would have to establish that their rival theology had even better apostolic credentials than biblical Unitarianism. Um, oh yeah, I've got, so the Shepherd of Hermas is an interesting letter. I'm like, I put this one at the end because I'm not banking all of my chips on the Shepherd of Hermas. It's a little bit of a strange letter. It was actually considered part of the New Testament for a while, and some of the earliest copies of the New Testament actually have this letter in it. It was written in Rome in the late first or early second century by a prophet who claimed to have a vision from angels, and it actually mentions Clement of Rome in the book. And if you read the Christology of the Shepherd of Hermas, well, here's what it says. The holy preexistent spirit, which created the whole creation, God made to dwell in flesh that he desired. This flesh, therefore, in which the Holy Spirit dwelt, was subject unto that spirit, walking honorably in holiness and purity, without in any way defiling the spirit. When then it had lived honorably in chastity and had labored with the Spirit and had cooperated with it in everything, having itself boldly, behaving itself boldly and bravely, he chose it as a partner with the Holy Spirit, that he there is God. God chose it, the flesh or the person that had the Holy Spirit in it as his own partner. He therefore took the Son as advisor, and again, Son there is that human part, um, that this flesh too might have some place of sojourn and might not seem to have lost the reward for its service. For all flesh, which is found undefiled and unspotted, wherein the Holy Spirit dwelt, shall receive a reward. So this is basically a biblical Unitarian Christology told from the perspective of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit creates the world, like when, you know, it says in Genesis, like God's Spirit was hovering over the waters. So that's where that idea comes from. The Spirit enters a human, the human lives honorably and in purity, not defiling the Holy Spirit. And then because of this honorable living, God chooses this son. It doesn't say it became a son or was adopted as a son. It just says the son became an advisor. I think that's a, a reference to the exaltation of, of Jesus to God's right hand. So as cryptic as this language sounds, I actually think it's pretty clear that you can see a biblical Christology, a biblical Unitarian Christology here, where the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers a cooperative human. So the Shepherd of Hermas, like I said, early early second century, maybe even late first century, um, and it has strong connections to Clement of Rome because Clement of Rome is mentioned in it, and it's also written in Rome. And so I should say another thing about the geographic distribution of biblical Unitarianism. I think it's relatively clear from the historical record that biblical Unitarianism had sort of two geographic centers. One was Rome itself, as I've shown multiple times, and then the other one was sort of the eastern fringe of the empire, and also maybe even the eastern stretches beyond the Roman Empire, like in the Persian Empire, and that a lot of the evidence of biblical Unitarianism either comes from Rome or that eastern fringe. Whereas Logos Incarnation Theology seems centered in Alexandria, Egypt, and also like what we would now call Turkey and Greece, what they would have called Asia. And so I think that 
part of the reason why these theologies develop differently and part of the reason why they come into conflict is they sort of had different geographic homelands and where it was it might be possible to grow up in Alexandria, Egypt and never meet a biblical Unitarian and you meet them and you're like, oh, that's a heretic. But if you're in Rome in the early third century and someone comes and tells you that biblical Unitarianism is heretical, you're like, wait a minute, we've been biblical Unitarians this whole time. What are you talking about? And so I think part of it is that there was different geographic regions where these different theologies developed and that caused them to interact badly with each other because of that. All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about modalism now. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on modalism, but just a couple quotes. This is from Tertullian's book Against Praxius. In various ways has the devil rivaled and resisted the truth. Sometimes his aim has been to destroy the truth by defending it. He maintains that there is only one Lord, the almighty creator of the world, in order that out of this doctrine of the unity he might fabricate a heresy. He says that the father himself came down into the virgin, was himself born of her, himself suffered, indeed was himself Jesus Christ. So this is criticizing modalism, the idea that the father was incarnate in Jesus. Um, and then, so that that's from like the early 200s AD. And so we have a guy named Praxius and another guy named Sibelius who are uh, examples of that theology then. And then uh, a second quote, Hippolytus writing against Noetus says this, some others are secretly introducing another doctrine who have become disciples of one Noetus, who is a native of Smyrna. This person was greatly puffed up and inflated with pride, being inspired by the conceit of a strange spirit. He alleged that the Christ was the father himself and that the father himself was born and suffered and died. So this work also comes from the early third century. And I, I should also say in this, um, I quoted that Tertullian quote, uh, outside this quote, I didn't include it in here. Tertullian mentions that Praxius was from Asia and Hippolytus mentions that this Noetus um, guy was from Smyrna. So what seems to happen to me is that there must have been some teacher of um, this sort of modalistic Christology somewhere in Asia who started making disciples around the year 200. And then we start to see witnesses of that teaching in the early 200s. And it seems to have come from Asia and spread elsewhere. But we don't have any witness to it in, from the second century or from the first century. And then I should also say, I read that Novation quote from earlier, the cruci Jesus crucified between the two wrong theologies, and one of those wrong theologies was modalism. And so that's also another witness to this theology, but all of them are from the first half of the third century. And so that to me is the clear sort of evidence that this teaching was a historical development or an innovation that came in later into the Christian tradition and is not true, therefore, and is not part of the apostolic teaching. All right, so now I'm going to talk about Logos Incarnation Theology. All right, this is a quote from Justin Martyr. Previously, I quoted Justin Martyr witnessing about biblical Unitarianism, but this is him describing his own theology. He who appeared to Abraham under the oak in Mamre is God, sent with the two angels in his company to judge Sodom by another who remains ever in the super celestial places, invisible to all men, holding personal intercourse with none, whom we believe to be the maker and father of all things. So what I should say here is this is the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, where three angels come to Abraham, and he says that one of them, the one who is called God, is the son 
or the, yeah, the son of the maker of all things. But he was sent by another. This other person who sent the God who appeared is ever in super celestial places, invisible to all men, holds personal intercourse with none, and is the maker and father of all things. Justin, the best way to describe Justin's theology is that there's this one super God who has all of those attributes I just mentioned, and he begets this secondary God whom you can call God and is a God, but is like the messenger and the emissary who the big God sends around because the big God's invisible. You can't direct with him in direct. You can't interact with him directly, but you can interact with the secondary God directly. And so that's what he thinks is happening. That's the two powers in heaven uh, theology that I described from earlier. And Justin is the best earliest clear example of it. All right. The second paragraph, I shall attempt to persuade you that there is another God and Lord subject to the maker of all things, who is also called an angel because he announces to men whatsoever the maker of all things, above whom there is no other God wishes to announce to them. So Justin here specifically calls this God another God. And other places he'll use the phrase distinct God or numerically distinct God. Other church fathers of the same time often called him the second God. Like, this sounds weird to people, but it's true. Most of these theologians like Justin Martyr believed in two gods, a big God and then an emissary God. And the emissary God does whatsoever, the maker of all things, the big God, above whom there is no other God, wishes to announce. The second God has a God above him, the big God. The big God has no one above him. So there's this Binitarian, but even then, Binitarian isn't quite the right word. There's just this double God theology where the two gods have different roles and different attributes. Um, so this is another quote from Justin Martyr. Our teacher of these things is Jesus Christ, having learned that he is the son of the true God himself, and holding him in second place and the prophetic spirit in third, we will prove. For they proclaim our madness to consist in this, that we give to a crucified man a place second to the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of all. For they do not discern the mystery that is herein, to which, as we make plain to you, we pray you give heed. So what Justin is saying there is that the Son of God holds second place, and he holds second place to the unchangeable eternal God. So there is the one God himself who is eternal and unchangeable. In second place, there is this Jesus Christ. And then in third place is the Holy Spirit. So there's this stacked hierarchy of three gods. And I would say that this is actually the origin of where um, the idea of first person, second person, third person of the Trinity comes from. Like, why is God the Father first person? Why is the Son second? Why is the Holy Spirit third? Well, it comes from this older theology, which had them as a stacked hierarchy of gods, because nowhere in the Bible is the phrase first person of the Trinity or third person of the Trinity. That's a completely made up later innovation. But Justin Martyr is testifying of an earlier version of that, which had an even greater degree of hierarchy and distinction. So we've got Justin Martyr there, who's a witness to this incarnation of the Logos theology around 150 AD. And I would admit that Justin Martyr, who's writing in 150 AD, he probably believed these doctrines earlier than that period. So you could probably push him back to like 140 or 130, but I'm having the arrows be when about they wrote. All right, the Epistle of Barnabas. 
Having renewed us by the remission of our sins, he has made us after another pattern. It is his, it is his purpose that we should possess the soul of children inasmuch as he has created us anew by his spirit. For the scripture says concerning us while he speaks to the son, let us make man after our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the beasts of the earth and the fowls of heaven and the fishes of the sea. So here, the epistle of Barnabas is testifying that when God in uh, Genesis says, let us make, it's the father speaking to the son. Although I will say, I there's a plausible alternative interpretation in my mind, that the epistle of Barnabas here is doing a Christological reapplication. Like I said, when you take a biblical passage and you take it out of its original context and reapply it to the Christian context. And the reason why I might point to that is that he's talking about a renewed creation and a recreation. He created us anew by his spirit. So the creation that he could be referencing here could be the new creation in Christ Jesus when we get born again, not necessarily the Genesis creation. But for now, honestly, I'll just grant this as a form of pre-existence uh, or a witness of pre-existent Logos incarnation theology. The epistle of Barnabas, maybe it was written by the Barnabas in the New Testament, although most historians don't think so. And it was written between the destruction of the temple and the Bar Kokhba revolt, which puts it between 70 and 132 AD. So this could be an early testament to a belief in the preexistence of Jesus, although not necessarily Trinitarianism, just like Logos Incarnation theology, like I've explained. Um, Ignatius of Antioch. A lot of people like to use Ignatius as an early reference to the belief in the deity of Christ in some sense. Um, this really depends on which recension, recession, recension, oops, I misspelled that, of Justin, or sorry, of Ignatius that you trust. In the first, in the middle recension, there are seven letters, and in these seven letters, Jesus gets called God multiple times, and there's incarnational language. But this middle recension comes from uh, a, a um, scholar named Lightfoot, who was kind of putting together various scraps and fragments from Greek. Um, but a lot of scholars also think that the short recension is more authentic. It is one package that was found all together in one piece in Aramaic in an Eastern monastery. And Jesus in the short recension is never called God, and it's hard to discern any specific Christology from it. So it could very well just as easily be biblical Unitarian. And like, I'm not going to establish in this video which of these recensions is uh, the right one. People have been arguing about this. When was uh, Ignatius of Antioch writing? Some scholars have given a date as early as 98 AD and some as late as 180 AD. I think that the most likely period is the 130s or the 140s. My reason for that I would give is that Polycarp is mentioned as an important bishop during the life of An uh, Ignatius of Antioch. And that Polycarp, in order to be an important bishop, uh, you have to be at least 30 years old to be a bishop. But to be like an, a bishop of great stature and importance, you'd probably be more likely 50 or 60 or even 70 years old. We know the dates of Polycarp's life pretty precisely because of the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is a book written about him. So Polycarp was born in about 70 AD. So in order for him to be an important bishop, it's got to be about 130 or 140 AD, I would say. So... Um, this is a quote about the epistles of Ignatius. The epistles attributed to Ignatius have attracted greater notice and have created more discussion than any other uninspired writings. Large volumes have been written either to establish their authority or to prove that they are forgeries. 
and the books in various languages to which they have given birth would themselves form a considerable library. Recent discoveries have thrown new light on their pretensions, but though the controversy has now continued upwards of 300 years, it has not hitherto reached a satisfactory determination or termination. So I just think like I'm not against or an enemy of Ignatius of Antioch. I would love nothing more for us to have really good, high quality, reliable testimony about what the early Christians believed. I am not like trying to root against Ignatius. I just say that Ignatius, there's too much historical controversy for any side to put too much weight on him. You're building your house on the sand if you're building your case for your beliefs on the writings of Ignatius of Antioch, because there's just too much uncertainty about when and which writings are um, legitimate. So I've got Ignatius in here. He's in green because I don't find him uh, that we can categorize him with satisfaction. And we also really don't know when he was writing. All right. So Tertullian. So this is a quote from Tertullian. For he could not have been the father previous to the son, nor judge previous to sin. There was, however, a time when neither sin existed with him nor the son, the former of which was to constitute the Lord a judge and the latter a father. Just as he became the father by the son and a judge by sin, so also did he become Lord by means of those things which he had made in order that they might serve him. So this is a clear quote from Tertullian that he believes that the son came to exist at a certain period of time and that before the son came to exist, the father wasn't even a father. He was simply God um, by himself. So that is... Some people like to point to Tertullian as an early example of Trinitarianism. This is clearly he's agreeing with the Arian idea that the sun came to exist at a certain period of time. Um, I have this long quote by Tertullian. I'm not going to read it out loud because it's too long really for this video. I'll just put it here as reference because what I'm about to say, some people really might not believe. But if you actually read Tertullian's theology, Tertullian had a lot of writings where he was interacting with the arguments of Marcion. Marcion was a Gnostic teacher who taught that the God of the Old Testament was an evil, bad God, whereas the God of the New Testament was a completely different God. And he liked to, Marcion liked to point out in the Old Testament that God like changes his mind, regrets that he made people, gets angry, and all sorts of other things like that that Marcion would say were not befitting of the highest God. And so that's why Marcion thought that the God of the Old Testament was an evil God. And Tertullian spends a lot of time writing against that idea and against Marcion's teachings. And But what he does say is that the God of the Old Testament who changes his mind, who gets angry, and who does other things like that, that's actually the pre-incarnate Jesus, which is, again, the secondary God figure, not the highest God. And the reason why the second God could, you know, do those sorts of things, which might not look fully divine, is because he wasn't really fully divine yet. He was like a God in training, and he gets better and better at being God over time. And when he becomes incarnate, he gets even better at being God. And then when he ascends back into heaven, he's like a perfected God. And so basically the Old Testament was like Jesus's pre-incarnate training on how to be a good God, while God the Father above was sort of watching him as, a, as the Father watches his son mature and get better. And so he's sort of granting Marcion's point that the God of the Old Testament doesn't seem very godlike. But Tertullian's answer is, well, that was actually the second God who was the pre-incarnate Jesus getting better at being God. That sounds ludicrous. You can read that writing yourself. I have it quoted right here. If you don't believe me, uh, let me know if you think it says something different. That's, I think, exactly what he's saying. 
And so if you think that Tertullian is an early witness of Trinitarian doctrine, well, if someone showed up in your church and told you that the God of the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate Jesus who is still learning how to be a good God and made a lot of mistakes, would you give them communion or not? That's I'll just leave that there. All right, so we've got Tertullian in the early third century as another witness to Logos incarnation theology. Um, so Irenaeus, another person that people like to point to as an early Trinitarian or proto-Trinitarian is Irenaeus. And they'll point out that there aren't quotes from Irenaeus that are as obviously heretical as some of the quotes that I've found from Justin and Tertullian and people like that. Um, and they'll say that Irenaeus was a good example of a, a Trinitarian in the second century. But my point would be is that Irenaeus didn't write as much about his own theology as these other theologians did. Irenaeus's main work that survives is against the heretics, which is criticizing other people's beliefs, and he spends not nearly as much time positively constructing his own beliefs. But here even is a quote that I think can show that Irenaeus really just agrees with Justin and Tatian and other of the Logos incarnation theologians with this like two-stacked God where there's the one transcendent God who creates and begets the secondary God as an act of will at a certain period of time. So let me read this quote. Even the Lord, the very Son of God, allowed that the Father alone knows the very day and hour of judgment, but of that day and that hour knows no man, neither the Son, but the Father only. If then the Son was not ashamed to ascribe the knowledge of that day to the Father only, neither let us be ashamed to reserve for God those greater questions which may occur to us. So here, Irenaeus, like modern Trinitarians, when you ask them, well, how could the Son not know the day or the hour? Most modern Trinitarians will say that the Son didn't know in his human nature, but he somehow did still know in his divine nature. And Irenaeus isn't doing that. He's just saying that the Son presumably even in his divine nature, doesn't know things that the Father knows. He doesn't find that objectionable at all. But anyway, moving on, that's not even the part that I'm most interested in. For no man is superior to his master, although that's clearly a also a statement about subordination, that the son is uh, subordinate to his master, the Father. If anyone says to us, how then was the son produced by the Father?, we reply to him that no man understands his generation, which is in fact altogether indescribable. Neither Valentinus, nor Marcion, nor Saturninus, nor Basilides, but the Father only who begot, and the Son who was begotten. Since therefore his generation is unspeakable, those who strive to set forth generations and productions cannot be in their right mind, for that a word is uttered at the bidding of thought and mind all men indeed well understand. So what Irenaeus is saying here is that the Gnostics had all sorts of mythologies and detailed descriptions of how the various gods and eons and other sorts of creatures in their cosmology came to exist. And Marcion, or what um, Irenaeus is saying is that it's not right to go into such heavy detail about all those things because the form of generation of how the father begets the son is in some ways indescribable, but yet then he does give something of an answer, a positive description of how this happened. Basically, a word is uttered at the bidding of thought and mind. And what the Logos incarnationalists believe, they had this, what you can call a two-stage Logos theory. They believe that in the beginning, God the Father was a Unitarian monotheistic God who existed by himself alone, like Tertullian said, where his word was inside his mind. Basically, God had his wisdom internal to himself, 
but it wasn't a second person. It was just his own mind. And then at the beginning of creation, like when God says, let there be light, he speaks out the logos, and then the logos becomes the secondary begotten God. You can quite find quotes that say exactly that in Justin, in Athenagoras, in Tertullian, in Tatian, in a lot of these theologians, they all have this two-stage logos idea. And I think this is clearly Irenaeus affirming that two-stage logos idea. And it's not controversial that Irenaeus would have affirmed this because Justin Martyr, who is his hero and his main theological mentor, affirmed it. And Tatian, who was Irenaeus's student and who would learn most of his theology from Irenaeus, also affirmed it. So if Justin affirms it and Tatian affirms it, then of course Irenaeus affirmed it. And I think that sentence there at the end affirms that same idea, the two-stage logos idea that God creates the logos by speaking it out at the beginning of creation. And I'll, uh, here's a quote, I think, from Novation that clearly affirms this two-stage logos idea, just to give a little bit more, um, I don't know, clear quotations of what this theology looks like. So, thus God the Father, the founder and creator of all things, who only knows no beginning, invisible, infinite, immortal, eternal, is one God. So, right, we've got God the Father, who's this Unitarian ultimate God, who's all of those attributes, and him alone, he only knows all of those things and knows all of those attributes. He is one God. God the Father is one God. Even Novation, who's writing a book called On the Trinity, although he didn't title that himself, that's a later title attributed to it. People think Novation is like another example of an early Trinitarian from the third century. Like, I just say, read him more closely if you think that. He believes in a Unitarian monotheistic God, God the Father. But when he willed it, that is when the Father willed it, the Son, the Word, was born. He then, when the Father willed it, proceeded from the Father. He who is in the Father came forth from the Father, and he who is in the Father, because he was of the Father, was subsequently with the Father, because he came forth from the Father. This is this two-stage Logos idea, right, where the Logos is inside God's mind, and then comes out, and then is its own secondary God, who is still not the one ultimate God. All right, here's another quote from Novation. Novation is defend right like the last time we were reading Novation, he was trying to argue that there are not two gods when you in his theology. So how is he going to defend the idea that there are not two gods in his theology? He says, God proceeding from God, causing a person second to the Father as being the Son, but not taking from the Father that characteristic that he is the one God. So the Son comes out from the Father, but he doesn't steal the characteristic that God the Father is the one true God. If he had not been begotten compared to with him who was not begotten, and as being found equal, they not being begotten would have reasonably given two gods. So in other words, if the son were not begotten like the father is, and if they were equal, then you'd have two gods. Well, um, if you believe that the father and son are equal, are, you're not going to escape Novation's criticism of believing in two gods. So he believes that the second God is a lower God who in some way doesn't infringe upon the monotheism of the Father. He continues, if he had been formed without beginning like the Father, and he himself were the beginning of all things as the Father is, this would have made two beginnings and consequently two gods also. Had he been invisible as compared with the invisible and declared equal, he would have shown forth two invisibles and thus also to be two gods. Okay, this is in like direct contradiction to the later Athanasian Creed, 
which calls um, both of them invisible and incomprehensible. If incomprehensible, if also whatever other attributes belong to the Father, reasonably we say, he would have given rise to the allegation of two gods, as these people feign. So because God the Father is unbegotten, and because he's without beginning, and because he's invisible, and because he's incomprehensible, only God the Father is the one true God. There is, And so the Son doesn't count as a second God because he is not those things. All right, so we've got all four of these people witnessing to um, Logos Incarnation Theology. All right, so this quote's from Constantine, and this is from Constantine's speech at the end of the Council of Nicaea. Constantine is talking about what the theologians gathered together have decided. Plato, the gentlest and most refined of all, who first essayed to draw men's thoughts from sensible to intellectual and eternal objects and taught them to aspire to sublimer speculations, in the first place declared with truth a God exalted above every essence. But to him he added also a second, distinguishing them numerically as two, though both possessing, possessing one perfection. And the being of the second God proceeding from the first, for he is the creator and controller of the universe, and evidently supreme, while the second, as the obedient agent of his commands, refers the origin of all creation to him as cause. So here, Constantine, this is a quote where he directly uses the phrase second God. The second God proceeded from the first God, and the first God is higher and evidently supreme, while the second God is an obedient subordinate agent of the first God. This is the two stacked gods idea. I mean, he like Constantine literally says to second God. And this is at the end of the Council of Nicaea. I think some people have this idea that the Council of Nicaea, prior to the Council of Nicaea, everyone was Trinitarian. And then this guy Arius shows up and says naughty things. And then they condemn Arius. And then everyone goes back to being Trinitarian ever after the Council of Nicaea. Like that's so wrong on so many different levels that I almost don't even know where to start. There were no Trinitarians at the Council of Nicaea. The, tr the full doctrine of the Trinity hadn't been developed yet. I'll have quotes later where I think the, uh, the full doctrine of the Trinity finally gets developed in like 350 or 360 AD, but no one at the council was yet a fully developed Trinitarian because that didn't exist yet. And the doctrine at the Council of Nicaea was really just an elevated form of Logos incarnation theology where there are two, there's a hierarchy of two gods. That's exactly what Constantine says. And if you think Constantine is dumb or doesn't know what he's talking about, he was one of the most intelligent and well-educated people alive at the time. He'd been paying attention to the whole council. He was there the whole time, and he knew all of these people. And I should also add another thing that it's interesting that Plato, Constantine connects this doctrine with Plato. And I can't help but get the impression that the development of the doctrine of the Trinity and the Logos incarnation theology has a lot in common with Greek philosophy whereas they would criticize biblical Unitarianism for being too Jewish. And um, I just think that maybe uh, being too Greek is not good and being more Jewish is perhaps better. Um, that, uh, so here's the, the Nicene Creed from the actual Council of Nicaea. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And again, this will sound ludicrous, but hopefully this presentation will have prepared people to hear what I'm saying. Even the Council of Nicaea, the creed, is actually Unitarian in the sense that the highest God is one person. 
we believe in one God. Who is the one God that they believe in? Not the Trinity. The one God that the Nicene Creed believes in is the Father Almighty, the transcendent, ultimate God, the maker of all things. And it also believes in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is of the essence of the Father, God from God. Another way of translating God from God would be a God from the God. Basically, that's what that's what Constantine was saying, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is a God who comes from the essence of the high God. Light from light, very God of very God, begotten, not made consubstantial with the Father. All right. Um, and I should also say that the original Nicene Creed, they were like barely talking about the Holy Spirit. That's another easy way to argue why they weren't Trinitarian, is all the original Nicene Creed from 325 says about the Holy Spirit is we believe in the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Ghost. It doesn't talk about that that much. So we can see then we've got a relatively steady version of Logos Incarnation theology, starting perhaps with the Epistle of Barnabas, but definitely with Justin Martyr, going through the second, third, and fourth centuries. So what is the Arian controversy, and when does the final doctrine of the Trinity come to be? So this is a quote from Bishop Alexander. Some people think that Athanasius and Arius were rivals. Athanasius was like 40 or 50 years younger than Arius. They weren't really peers. The two peers that were fighting at the Council of Nicaea were Bishop Alexander of Alexandria and Arius, who was a priest from Alexandria. So this is a letter from right before the Council of Nicaea when the Arian controversy is just starting to start. So um, I'll read, we then assembled, having anathematized these things that were said by the group around Arius, who that hears John, who that hears John saying in the beginning was the word, does not condemn those who say there was a time when the word did not exist, or who hearing the gospel of the only begotten son, and that through him all things were made, will not hate those who proclaim that the son is one of those things that were made. How can he be one of the things which were made through himself? And how could he come into existence from nothing when the Father has said, my heart has spewed out a good word? Or how can he be unlike the Father in essence when he is the perfect image and radiant glory of the Father and says, he that sees me has seen the Father? Again, how if the Son is the word and the wisdom of God, could there be a time when he did not exist? This is equivalent to their saying that God was once without the word and without wisdom. So you can see here, the, the, there are multiple points of contention between Alexander and Arius. One is, did the word come to exist or was the word eternal? Alexander is supporting the idea that the word is eternal. And I would say that Alexander is slightly innovative in his really high exaltation of the logos and that he's breaking with tradition a little bit somewhat in some of these things. And this is part of what causes the Arian controversy. I will also, I'll get to Arius's theology next. I'll also say Arius seems to be counter-reacting against Alexander. And really what I think the Arian controversy is, is that the Logos incarnation theology camp is breaking into two camps over details within their own theology. And so one question is, did the word come to exist like the way that most of the incarnation theologians had previously thought, or was the word eternal? Um, Origin, who I haven't really talked about. Origin is honestly kind of complicated and belongs in its own category. Uh, maybe I, I've got plenty of videos about origin if you want to hear more of my thoughts about origin. But so Alexander might be somewhat influenced by some of the ideas of origin in believing that the word was eternal as opposed to that two-stage logos idea. Some other things that Arius disagrees with Arius, Alexander disagrees with Arius about is um, whether the father and the son share in essence, like share in usia, 
or whether they have different essences. And then the other thing that they seem to disagree about is whether the word should be called a creation or whether it should be thought of as not part of the creation, but a, something prior to being a creature. So we can read Arius's theology. And if you want to hear, I've got a whole video on Arius and then a whole video on the Council of Nicaea, if you want to hear this sort of stuff in more detail. But very briefly, Arius, this is from Arius's writings. So God himself, as he really is, is inexpressible to all. That isn't that controversial, honestly, if Arius to say, like lots of the early church fathers said that sort of thing. He alone has no equal, no one similar, and no one of the same glory. I mean, that sounds a lot like novation, right? We call him unbegotten in contrast to him who is by nature begotten, also sounds like novation. We praise him as without beginning in contrast to him who has a beginning, Novation said basically the same thing. We worship him as timeless in contrast to him who in time has come to exist. So there is a triad or a trinity, not in equal glories. I think some people have this idea that the Council of Nicaea was Trinitarians versus anti-Trinitarians. But no one phrased the, the conflict that way. No one called themselves a Trinitarian or called them other people non-Trinitarians. And in fact, Arius in his own writings call, uses the word trinity to describe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He just thinks that they are, are subordinate, like there's a stack of unequal glories, as he puts it, within the Trinity, which is, again, very similar to what Justin Martyr said when he said the Father was in first place, Son, second place, the Spirit, third place. Arius is echoing that very same idea, more or less. Their beings, their hypostases, if you know your Greek terminology, are not mixed together amongst themselves. As far as their glories, one is infinitely more glorious than the other. The father in his essence, his usia, is a foreigner to the son, right? The son and the father don't have the same essence because he exists without beginning. I think that some of Arius's theology, such as the son being created ex nihilo, were actually relatively new to Arius. So I don't want to give the impression that Arius was like just perfectly traditional, even though I do think he was more traditional than Alexander, at least in terms of the Logos incarnation theology. But he did invent some new ideas. And I do think that part of what happened, I said, is what had been sort of a spectrum within the Logos incarnation theology camp gets bifurcated into two camps and they divide and turn against each other. And that's really what the Arian controversy is. And it's, it's that process that is the crucible for the development of the final doctrine of the Trinity. So here's like sort of my diagram for how this happens. Like prior to Nicaea, you just had the Logos incarnation theologians, and they had some slight variations and differences from each other. But for the most part, there's a pretty coherent school of thought there. And then you get basically high Logos incarnation with Alexander and low Logos incarnation theology with Arius. And then there are other uh, Arians after Arius, like, um, and actually the Arians continue to exist for about 500 years after Arius. People think they disappeared at the Council of Nicaea, but that's not true at all. And then the, with Alexander, you get following after him. Alexander was the mentor of Athanasius. And I think in Athanasius's life, he starts out as a mentor of Alexander, and then the Arian controversy gets really heated up, and Athanasius is right in the heat of all of that. And I think in the arguments between Arians and um, the Alexanderians, you could say, um, that is the the crucible that forges the doctrine of the Trinity. And Athanasius wasn't alone. He had friends like Hilary Poitier, and then later the Cappadocian Fathers and stuff like that. So here's a quote from Athanasius. And I would say, like, I'm this this quote is me trying to find the earliest quote that you could say 
testifies of genuine Trinitarian theology. This is the earliest form of Trinitarianism, the earliest testament to it. And I was trying to look for it as early as possible. And this is in Athanasius's letter to Serapion, which is written approximately 358 or 360 AD, which again is after the Council of Nicaea, not at or before the Council of Nicaea. So here is Athanasius. How then have they endured so much as to hear the spirit of the Son called a creature? Why have they not understood that just as by not dividing the Son from the Father, they ensure that God is one, so by dividing the Spirit from the Word, they no longer ensure that the Godhead in the Trinity is one, for they tear it asunder and mix it with a nature foreign to it and of a different kind, and put it on a level with the creatures. On this showing, once again, the Trinity is no longer one, but is compounded of two different natures. For the Spirit, as they have imagined, is essentially different. Either he is a triad, but a dyad, with the creature left over, or if he be a triad, as indeed he is, then how do they class the Spirit who belongs to the triad with the creatures which come after the triad? And again, triad and trinity are the same word there. I probably should have just changed them all to the word trinity. Therefore, while thinking falsely of the Holy Spirit, they do not think truly even of the Son. For if they thought correctly of the Word, they would think soundly of the Spirit also, who proceeds from the Father, and belonging to the Son is from him given to the disciples and all who believe in him. So basically, Athanasius is arguing against people who don't believe in the full divinity of the Holy Spirit and make the Holy Spirit a creature. And what his basic point is, is if you believe in the Trinity and you've got two people that have the same essence and a third that's a creature, well, then you have a Trinity of two different essences. It would make way more sense to just have all of them be fully divine. And then you have an undivided Trinity of one essence. And so this is the first time where I think you can see all three of them being treated with the same divine essence, and them together being somehow classified as the one God together, as opposed to the one God being the Father. Although even then, in a lot of the writings of Athanasius, especially the early ones, and even the latter ones, he still kind of has the residual idea too that the one true God is really the Father alone, and that the Son and the Spirit share in the essence, but aren't like the, the God without beginning. So there's sort of this transitionary period where you see a little bit of both going on. But this is the, the first fully Trinitarian quote that I could find in history. If someone has an earlier one, send it to me. But this is, I think, the emergence of the doctrine of the Trinity. Oh, I said Athanasius and the emergency of Trinitarianism. That's actually kind of funny. I meant the emergence of Trinitarianism. Um, Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, I, what I would say is that so Athanasius and his friends like Hilary of Poitiers and a bunch of other theologians in that period are sort of developing this idea that we can fight the objection of multiple gods if we make them one god together. And then the Cappadocian fathers, especially the two Gregories, uh, I wouldn't say Athanasius was smart, but he wasn't like a philosophical grade theologian. But the Gregories are philosophical grade theologians, and they come they come on later and forge it into its sort of highfalutin, kind of more finalized, formalized, theological, philosophical form. So here's a quote from Gregory of Nyssa. How is it that in the case of our statements of the mystery of the faith, though confessing the three persons and acknowledging no difference of nature between them, we are in some sense at variance with our confession when we say that the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is one, and yet forbid men to say that there are three gods. 
this question is, as I've said, very difficult to deal with. I'd actually highly recommend people read Not Three Gods by Gregory Nyssa. It's interesting. I don't think he ever fully succeeds in answering that question. But it's another clear testament to this idea that the doctrine of the Trinity is sort of being finalized and formalized. All right. So when did the doctrine of the Trinity de get declared the final orthodox doctrine? And I think this Edict of Thessalonica from 380 AD is probably the clearest example of when that happens. So I, I think some people think that Constantine sort of told everyone what to think and he introduced the doctrine of the Trinity. First, as I've said, Constantine believed in a hierarchy of two gods. He wasn't a Trinitarian. And Constantine also had a belief in sort of what you might say freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. He encouraged people to not be violently persecuted and to come to their own decisions. He was sort of one of those people who thought that the truth would win the day if it was given a free chance. And so Constantine actually, he doesn't bother me so much in some ways. Uh, but the emperor after, or multiple emperors after him, an emperor named Theodosius, he's really the one that sort of rules with an iron fist and forces the Trinity down. And this is, I think, a pretty clear example of that. It is our desire that all the various nation, nations, which are subject to our clemency and moderation, should continue to profess that religion, which was delivered to the Romans by the divine apostle Peter, and it has been preserved by faithful tradition, and which is now professed by the pontiff Damasus and by Peter, bishop of Alexandria, a man of and the doctrine of the gospel, let us believe in the one deity of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and in equal majesty and in a holy trinity. We order the followers of this law to embrace the name of Catholic Christians. But as for the others, since in our judgment they are foolish madmen, we decree that they shall be branded with the ignominious name of heretics and shall not presume to give to their conventicles the name of churches. Firstly, they will suffer the chastisement of the divine condemnation, and secondly, the punishment of our authority, which in accordance with the will of heaven shall decide to inflict, we shall decide to inflict. So this, I mean, first of all, I think it's clearly confessing a Trinitarian doctrine. Also, interestingly, it claims that this doctrine is apostolic and comes from Peter and the apostles and has been faithfully preserved in tradition. I don't think that that's true, but it is interesting that they are claiming that. They are not claiming that doctrine developed over time. They are claiming apostolic authority with this. I think I've showed that that's not the case. But I think what's most interesting to note here is the threat of violence and the treating people who disagree with this doctrine, even though it's really only about 20 or 25 years old at this point, is um, given the authority of the state to... to impose punishment and divine judgment on people with violence to enforce this. And I think that sectarian spirit that Gavin was talking about is really seen here. And I think that if I had to say, why do most uh, Protestants still believe in the Trinity? It has a lot more to do with the Edict of Thessalonica than it has to do with the New Testament. And that this fear of divine and earthly judgment has given the Trinity force through the ages, and that I'm glad that we live in an age when that's really no longer the case, even if there is still some amount of church discipline and stuff like that, which I don't think is in the name of the truth. So I'll read one last quote. This is by Augustine. 
until a man is purified of this sort of uncleanness, that is basically not fully understanding the doctrine of the Trinity, he must just believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one only God, great, omnipotent, good, just, merciful, creator of all things, visible and invisible, and whatever else humanity is capable of saying of him that is true and worthy of him. And when he hears the Father called the only God, he must not exclude the Son or the Holy Spirit from that title, for he is, of course, the only God together with whomever he is the one God with. And so one thing I think that you can see that's interesting in this quote, I think Augustine is really the first person to start to use individual singular pronouns of the Trinity itself as the one God. Like he's saying God him, but he means the whole Trinity, all three persons together where even in the Eastern tradition for a long time after this, there's still the sense that God himself is the father. And I think Augustine really starts this tradition, which you see in Gavin and modern evangelical, modern evangelical Trinitarians, that the one God himself, like you can use singular pronouns of God himself and somehow mean three selves. And I think that Augustine really kind of starts that idea. And Augustine, I think, is really the... Um, extremely large influential Goliath that shapes the doctrine of the Trinity and how it's taught and understood for basically all of Western tradition. And that I'll just sort of, uh, this is sort of just my bookend in this presentation to show that this is the doctrine of the Trinity that seems recognizable to modern day Trinitarians is quotes like this from Augustine. And he also says, a man is purified of this sort of uncleanness. Uncleanness is misunderstanding the doctrine of the Trinity. Even if you misunderstand the doctrine of the Trinity, you must just believe it. And the sort of you must just believe it is also an interesting trait of Trinitarianism, that if you don't understand it, that's sort of part of the point and that you just got to get going with it. And here's how you're supposed to talk about it, even if it seems confusing or doesn't make sense. And so, I don't know, here's sort of my full diagram together. I think that I've shown pretty clearly that the doctrine of the Trinity is not original to early apostolic Christianity. I think one could make a reasonable case that Logos incarnationalism might be, but even then you have that stacked double God theology like you see in Justin Martyr, not Trinitarian theology like in Athanasius or Augustine. And I think that biblical Unitarian Christology has the better claim on apostolic authority and apostolic originalness, especially with Clement of Rome and other uh, figures that I've pointed out than the, the red trajectory. And I think that modalism can be shown to have been a relatively short-lived thing from the early 200s to the mid 300s. Although modalism is alive and well in the oneness Pentecostals nowadays. But I think that, I don't know, I'm going to leave this presentation here. I was trying to keep it under two hours. I didn't quite succeed, but almost. So this is my invitation to Gavin, that I think by the same standards that you can show that prayer to the saints or icon veneration or, um, you know, Mary as the mother of God or what have you are later innovations that came into the Catholic tradition and that Protestantism inherited from Catholicism and then needed to filter out that the doctrine of the Trinity meets that same standard of something that <clears throat> excuse me, develops later and can be shown to be an accretion on the original apostolic of faith. So, my invitation stands to Gavin or whoever else might uh, listen to this, that I love to talk about these things and have a better and more fruitful conversation between Unitarian Christians and Trinitarian Christians going forward and not just perpetuate the spirit of sectarian bitterness and division and seek truth through unity. So thank you very much for listening.